Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
honest with you, then uh, when you do what he asks you to do, then he is with you just being with you. Because I don't think his level of pleased with you can go past complete. And he's completely pleased with you always. It's kind of like when people say, um, well, I gave it 110%. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. How do you give it past everything? It doesn't make any sense, right? We say those kinds of things. So we think that God, you know, well, God loves me 100%, and then he loves me a little bit more whenever I do what he wants. How does that work? Now, do I think that our Father loves me too? Do I think he looks down on us with delight when we obey his word? Of course. I'm not, I'm not suggesting he doesn't. But, it, but don't you think it plays into our issue of sin and condemnation if we think that he's more pleased when we've done it right than when we get it wrong? He's never been less in love with you than he is at this moment, and he will never be more in love with you than he is at this moment. It's just that simple. So we're going to look this morning at something that Paul Juxtapositioning the idea of sin and sinning. The question I'd like to begin with this morning is what is the basic nature of the relationship between God and humanity? The basic nature of the relationship between God and humanity. You see, for as long as I could remember, I have been possessed by a thought. As was said in the movie Inception, there's nothing more resilient than a thought once it's taken root in the mind. Once you have something in your mind, it just kind of sticks around there until you obey. So as long as I can remember, this was my thought. Have you seen God correctly? I literally remember being five and six years old, sitting on a pew, asking myself, have you seen God correctly? Because I just didn't think we had. And the reason I didn't think we had is our own doctrines argued with one another. God is love, but God is angry with me when I'm in sin. God is punitive and punishes us for our wrongdoing. But then he's goodness and no evil comes from him. God is uh, has predestined us to walk with him. But what that means is that in this some super weird way, God allows creation to keep creating or producing, knowing that two-thirds of all creation is going to burn in hell for all eternity by his predestination. That's what we believe. We maybe didn't say it like that, but Calvin taught that everybody who would say, God already knew that was part of his plan. As long as your salvation becomes part of God's plan, the lack of salvation also becomes part of God's plan, and God keeps allowing us to co-create, knowing that two-thirds of it's going to burn forever. Do you think that's love? Doesn't sound like love to me. You see where our doctrines get confused? Have you seen God correctly? Recently, I shared about a dream in which I woke with this statement ringing in my head. If the image we have of God is wrong, then the perspective of his image in creation will be also wrong. If the way we see him is wrong, then the way we see everything else will be wrong. Think of it this way. If we think of God as punitive, then we will likely view others through a punitive lens. If we think that God is angry at Muslims, then we will have no issue with Muslims being destroyed. We'll be able to cheer when people um, burn down mosques. We'll be able to cheer when people blow up abortion uh, parenthood clinics. Because we think that God is angry at those people for doing those kinds of things. So as long as God's angry, it doesn't bother me anymore. If we see him wrong, everything else we see becomes wrong. If we think God is separate from humanity, then we will likely approach creation as being separate, lost, and only able to reconnect 
to God through the same path that we have followed. Since around the year 400 AD, uh, St. Augustine established the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. We've discussed this in Dr. Hell, uh, which led us to answering in a penal supplication, penal substitutionary atonement theory, which means that God is the answer to our brokenness, um, is the idea that we all grew up with that God was mad at humanity because we were inherently separate. So God killed Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins and for our dissatisfaction. And while Jesus was on the cross giving up himself for our humanity, that God even turned his face upon us. That's a penal substitutionary atonement theory. Here's the deal. It's wrong. We looked at two weeks ago the fact that on the cross, Jesus showed us in the Psalms when he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And when he quotes these two verses later, it says, you've never forsaken your beloved and you will never turn your face from him. We quote from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 15 when we say that God can't look upon sin. Has anybody ever heard that God can't look upon sin? The beauty of that is somehow we figured out a way to put him off the verge. What Habakkuk actually says in that passage, the only time it's ever mentioned, is God, you can't look upon sin, so why do you? God, you're so perfect. You shouldn't even be able to look at me when I'm in sin, but you do anyway. That's the passage. So the doctrine of original sin is then what formed from that to create our idea of separation. I would like to suggest to you this morning that the more scriptural approach is not a doctrine of sin and separation, but of shame and estrangement. Before we go there, I need to be clear. I believe in sin. Okay? I want everybody here, everybody on Facebook, everybody on YouTube, everybody that's going to hear this across the way to tell me, oh, uh, Joel said he doesn't believe in sin. He thinks we can go get glasses on Saturday night and do whatever we want. Okay? I'm not suggesting that. I believe in sin. What I don't believe is I don't believe that God punishes you for it. Okay? There's no need for God to punish you for sin because Paul said the wages of sin is death. Sin carries its own punishment. God doesn't need to pour his wrath out on you when you've done wrong because what you've done that's wrong carries its own punishment. It doesn't say for the wages of sin is God's wrath. The wages of sin is God's anger, God's punishment. The wages of sin is death. So that's how we can easily say that God is good always. God didn't orchestrate Katrina. God didn't orchestrate 9-11. God didn't orchestrate any other heinous thing that we attributed to God because we said that God had to do 9-11 because of homosexuality in America had run rampant. So God had to flood them. God doesn't do anything that's not good. Everybody hear me? God does not do anything that's not good. Period. If we don't get that, we're really messed up. Because then we think that God ought to be good guy, bad guy kind of thing. God, oh, I'm so happy with you, lightning bolt. God doesn't work that way, okay? So, I believe in sin. That is one of the biggest complaints of Christians when we start talking about this. They would accuse us of devaluing sin. Actually, I think what we're doing is we're giving sin a proper weight. But we're cutting the cord, hear me clearly, we're cutting the cord of association between sin and the punishment of God. We're cutting the cord that says sin equals God's wrath. Because God can't have anger and wrath towards you and see you as his beloved who he loves completely and only gives goodness at the same time. I'm, now, let me be clear. Every single time that the judgment of God is mentioned, because I do believe in the judgment of God, every single time in, in the scripture that the judgment of God is mentioned, it's never, ever, ever penal to us. It's never penal, meaning I'm going to give a more punishment. It's always restorative. The only time God judges is if you screw up and make a mess. It's like cauterizing a wound. He didn't shoot you, but he's going to cauterize the wound so that you can heal. Does that make sense? Doesn't mean it won't be painful. 
Have you ever had a wound cauterized? It doesn't mean it feels good. But the wound isn't his fault. He didn't do the wound. So I think dealing with, um, oh, this is a good one. I think dealing with the disease of sin is absolutely crucial. I'm just tired of people attributing the disease of sin with our God who is actually the great physician. Don't you think it would be strange for the God who's the doctor to give you the infection? That's an upsell. Let me start by defining the words I'm using because words are very important. Separation. This would mean that there is a physical wall or hindrance put in place between humanity and the divine due to its sinful nature. So we believe, let me give you what this means. We've been taught that separation from God is what happens when man sins. Separation requires a physical wall or divide, a distance, a screen. We were taught that we were born into that separation. I hope, like, if you weren't, I'll just say hallelujah for you right now. But that's how I was raised. I'm still an Old Testament Christian. That's how we were raised. We've been told that God is bound by his holiness and therefore unable to associate with, be in the presence of, or give himself to anything that is sinful. Because God is beholden to his righteousness. In fact, this holiness nature demands that he punish our sinfulness with his righteous judgment. Separation implies that there is a literal technical distance between God and humanity. We sin, or in the original sin model, we're born sinners, if that's what you want to say, and therefore separate from God automatically. Have you ever thought it was weird? Do we think that if a baby dies, do we think the baby goes to heaven? No. We still believe it's just accountability to why the baby dies, right? So how are they born into sin and we still automatically don't go to heaven? We are about to spin that question. Because if you want to start with humanity doing original sin, you have to start after the fall. I would prefer to start in Genesis 1 with creation where God was the one who said be fruitful. God created you in original sin with separation. Now, we make decisions that, set, that, that cause that to be hindered. We cause sin to happen. But it's not like all of a sudden we're just divinely bound and we're just born a dirty, rotten sinner. Right? Yeah, it's not like Jeff Bezos. Yeah, this just happened in my world. <sighs> there is a, this separation doctrine causes us to have a physical distance between us and God. Christianity has taught us that this is a necessary distance between our brokenness and God's holiness, and often we are taught to live this out as Christians, representing God by us then separating ourselves from any other sin, because it's our God that we have represented as this Christian. So we have to then separate, separate ourselves from anything else that is sin. In doing so, we're demonstrating how God works. So do you see how if we get God wrong... So in some way, we believe that God's holiness has to be protected from our brokenness. So God can't engage with a broken humanity. We can't engage with a sinful humanity. So what has to happen is to maintain our holiness and our righteousness and our Christianity and God's holiness and his righteousness and who God is, he has to be distant. There has to be a chasm between God and brokenness. How feeble is his righteousness? is God's holiness that he can't get around your four-letter cuss word because all of a sudden it's going to throw him off his A-game? Seriously? Estrangement, so that's separation. Estrangement, on the other hand, is perceived distance. It is spiritual, psychological distance. Estrangement, in this sense, is pulling back is a pulling back if you can buy a party and usually implies that there isn't any physical restriction in that relationship. Estrangement says there is no separation between broken humanity and God, but there is a sense of separation created by our sin. The sense of separation is not on God's side due to his holiness and judgment, but it's on our side due to our shame and sin. 
that tells us that God won't come in the room when we are messed up is Jesus. Is our Son and our King and our Consoler and our Comforter. I have to start this little preamble first so that we can understand our Bible. Please bear with me. Jesus is God. It's always been God. Jesus will always be God. Also, God is like Jesus. Never be the opposite. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There will never be a time when God is not like Jesus. Okay, good? Check. We didn't know that. Now we do. So we should be able to look at God incarnate and see what God, uh, excuse me, God incarnate in Jesus and see what God the Father is like, right? God is Jesus. And God is like Jesus, and Jesus is God. We've agreed on all that stuff. So we should be able to look at Jesus and see exactly what God's like. Otherwise, they've got like this ridiculous personality that they want to put on, right? We know that's not the case. He doesn't, God doesn't need a psychiatrist or Xanax or whatever other drugs to get him straightened out. So we know that he's just like Jesus. So within that, what we have to understand is that Jesus was perfect and sinless. Everybody agree on that one? Okay, there's still some obvious stuff. Jesus was perfect and sinless. Wouldn't that mean that Jesus is perfect and holy just as God is perfect and holy? We're all still good, right? Okay, if that is the case, why would we think that Jesus' perfection and God-like holiness uh, would allow him to be a sinner, but God the Father's would not? Because Jesus is exactly like God. He's perfect and holy just like God. Why could Jesus come as a sinner and God can't? I can't, uh, excuse me, I can answer that. You know why? Just a second. Because we're really dumb. We've been taught that God's holiness, he's somewhere up on a cloud, he's there, he's perfect, he's holy, and there's this thing that's just missing in Jesus. If God is just like Jesus, where do we always find Jesus? With sinners. Why would we think if God and Jesus are exactly like Jesus, perfection is just like God's perfection, Jesus' holiness is just like his holiness? If that's not the case, we've got issues with our salvation doctrine about Jesus being the spotless lamb and your atonement isn't right. Right? So we better agree on that. That if Jesus could hang with sinners, then why does God have to protect himself? In fact, do you realize that one of the earliest doctrines we find about atonement is that our we as humanity, that the way God sees us is snow-covered dung. Because we're dirty, rotten nothings, and so Jesus is the white spotless lamb that covers our dung with pure living snow. The problem is under the snow, there's still dung. But that's the reality. And that's, that's the challenge. Uh, another guy, I just read this recently. This was said like three weeks ago. This guy actually said that Jesus is the asbestos suit to protect us from the white, hot, fiery wrath of God. Isn't that nice? His church is about 20,000 people, so at least not many people heard this. But that's the truth, that, this, that people believe that that's how this works. The problem is, let's use the dung analogy, because that's great on a Sunday morning. And when you think about that, the problem is, if we were created in his image, is his image dung? I mean, we think we're denigrating us, but we're actually denigrating him. Throughout the life of Jesus, we find instances of him engaging with sinners. And I don't mean Christian sinners. I mean sinning sinners. Right? Because you can, as soon as I say that, somebody's going to go, what, we're all sinners saved? That's what you have in mind? But I'm talking like sinning sinners. Full-on sinners. We see him engaging with them. In in fact, you can look through the Gospels and find Jesus hanging with sinners and not being offended. The story of Luke 7 comes to mind. In it, a woman comes into the house where Jesus lives and touches him. She breaks the alabaster box and pours it out on him. And the Pharisees were aghast because this woman was more than likely a prostitute. This woman was in a life of sin. 
And first of all, she wasn't supposed to be in the room because she was being sinning, because this is the holy ground of the temple. Second of all, she physically touched him, and they were the Pharisees were furious because they looked at him and said, you're supposed to be a rabbi. A rabbi represents God. God and sinners can't touch. Aren't you supposed to be representing him, God? Is our God truly God? Have you ever noticed that Christians like to hang out with Christians? If you were here, haven't you ever noticed that Christians only hang out with Christians? Isn't it super weird? We're like the salt of the earth in the eyes of the Jesus freaks. Our idea of the salt of the earth isn't just like the rest of the meal, right? Our idea of the salt of the earth is you take the lid off and pour it on a plate. And you just hang out with other salt. What good is salt on salt? It seems like that. But for me, I think that what the scripture teaches is it's supposed to season everything else. So what Jesus actually taught is that there is this thing that, that he does whereby he says, we're not separate. Unless we think there is a good cop, bad cop going on in the Trinity, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't do anything that my Father doesn't do. So when he's hanging out with the prostitute who's pouring out the Alabama Shabbat on him, and I don't find her praying the Roman's Road before she did it, Jesus didn't say, well, too bad, this is first. Just because you touch me. But the Pharisees were incensed by this. They were offended because their system or their institution demanded that they stay separate because of the primary mission of institution. The primary mission of religion as an institutional organization is this. Say it again with me. Say it again. Mission statement for religion is essentially this. God is separate from you. Let us get you in separate. And that's not wrong. I'm not being critical of religion, but that's been the mission statement of every religion since the beginning of time. God is angry or the gods are angry. Let us be something that acts as a mediator. You're separate from God. Let us get you in separate. And so what happens is within that framework, we've been taught to act like God as God, excuse me, we've been taught to act like God or as God's representatives because we were told that God separates from sinners and we must do the same. In that lies what I believe is the faulty premise of all religion, that God's holiness demands that God necessarily has to separate from broken humanity, sin, and degradation. I have always wrestled with that understanding. I've always felt that that wasn't so. When I was getting letters in the mail, when we started playing in bands, we started playing in, 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 uh, in bars, and I started getting emails and letters in the mail from other pastors and Christians telling me that their blood was going to be on their hands. That if I didn't give an altar call that every, every time we pray and invite people to escape eternal hell, that in eternity their blood would be on their hands. It didn't feel right. Didn't know why it was. Well, knew why that was. But the idea that we, that we have to be separate in our religion never felt right. God's got better than that. And I didn't have to be there to give an altar call. with this eternal my entire life because Jesus said if you want to learn about the father then think about your own parents which one of you would describe yourself as a great parent by saying well when my child is most broken and hurting I can't be near doesn't have better If that is the case, religion then tries to come to a euphemism of between God and broken humanity. From the earliest records, we find this is how this works. We find a blueprint within pagan religion, and that's the only reason I have Jordan Battle this morning. That's not for anyone but us. It's from pagan religion. Pagan religion taught that the gods were furious with us, and they would cause there to be things like famine and plague and pestilence and disease. And what they would have to do is they would have to do things to appease the gods. They would have festivals where they would literally take crops that they had taken, harvested, and burn them on altars. They would burn their food because they felt like it appeased the gods and would 
They would sacrifice their children. They would sacrifice animals because they thought the gods were mad. They didn't know why the gods were mad. The gods were mad, though, because we're human beings. And so they had to make the gods unmad. That then got imported into our lives. So God is mad, and there has to be this thing where we have to offer him enough sacrifices to appease him. And it kicks in really deeply in our psychology. Because what has is the happiness theory. God, then, has never been separate in the first place. But what happens is we come up with the framework that says God is mad at me. And maybe if I punish myself, he won't be as hard on me. Have you ever seen little kids when they know they're going to get a whooping and they start smacking themselves in the butt? I've seen that before. You see that where little kids, they know they're in trouble. They know they're getting ready to get a whooping. So they go run up to mom and they say, you know, dad, they're like smacking themselves in the other room. Why? Because the thought is maybe if I do this, then you won't. That's what we do. So we punish ourselves with guilt. We punish ourselves with shame. We punish ourselves with fasting. Now, I'm not saying all fasting is wrong, but I know people that punish themselves. It's not fasting when you're doing it out of guilt. It's called starvation. And so we punish ourselves with not allowing ourselves to experience joy. We punish ourselves with feeling like we can't do certain things or we haven't experienced things. And we punish ourselves because if we feel like if I impose enough sanctions on myself, it's like, it's like college teens, have you seen this before? There are, there are no exceptions that I know about. College teens, when they get in trouble because they've been punching players under the table, what they do first before the NCAA levels the, the penalty is the college sanctions themselves. Why? Because the thought is if we impose a strong enough penalty, maybe the NCAA will take an interest in us. That's what we do because we're human. And it's something that's been imported into our belief paganism, religion. This idea is the, 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 the thought that the gods are angry and the thought that God is, is vengeful and he's punitive and he, he is a judge and, and you are on trial. Jesus is your lawyer and the enemy is the prosecutor. Is that pretty clear? Jesus is your lawyer, the enemy is the prosecutor. He's accusing you and God is the judge So we come up with priests, the idea of priests, and, and I'm, I'm one of these pastors, are designated holy people to go to God on our behalf. We come up with altars. Altars are some type of space that we can come to God, we're on one side, God's on the other, and it's almost, um, it's almost um, like a, a, a weapon-free zone, you know, where we can all talk, everybody, God's not going to kill us, thank God. And so we have this thing that happens when in reality, he's never been mad in the first place. You've never needed a priest in the first place. If I can be really honest with you, we have so many of these doctrines just imported into things that were never really the way it was. It is estrangement and shame since the beginning. From this, we develop ideas like self-sacrifice and we bathe ourselves in the guilt and shame about our brokenness in an attempt to lessen the blow of God's wrath against our sin. What if all of that is built upon this one proper assumption that God is not actually on the other side of a gap to protect his family, but he's been with you all along? So if you'll, uh, if you want to turn there, you can. I'll show it to the next story. We connect with this one big time story. And the, we start, the reason we context for these two stories is because Jesus is hanging out with sinners. In fact, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says, Many dishonest tax collectors and notorious sinners often gathered around to listen to Jesus. These guys weren't just sinners. They were notorious sinners. 
don't know if that's like notorious B.I.G., but they were notorious in their own right. So these guys weren't just sinning. They were notoriously sinning. Everybody knew they were sinners. These guys made sinning their profession. And they were always around Jesus' day. So Luke 15, they come around Jesus. Jesus meets with them. He's teaching them. He's talking to them about who God is, how to be Christians. And within that, it begins to raise concerns in the religious leaders. So the religious leaders get mad and become indignant and grumble and complain. Look at how this mess they created with all the notorious sinners. It welcomes all them to come to him. In response to that, Jesus gives three parables. And I want to use two of those. So the first parable he gives is about the lost sheep. So his answer to the question, what was the question? Why are you hanging around with these people and you're keeping yourself safe? Right? You can agree with that. So if that's the question, his first answer is, there was a shepherd who had a sheep. One of the sheep ran away. After the sheep ran away, the shepherd goes and finds the sheep and beats it to a pulp. Is that what it says? punishes it for straying from him. He punishes it for not being like the other sheep, before he allowed it to come back in. He makes sure that the sheep is really remorseful and sorry and feels pain and guilt and condemnation. And then when he comes back into the fold, the rest of the nine wants to come point at the other sheep and make sure it knows that it's not really like them. Or, he goes to the sheep and runs to it, puts it on his shoulders, carries it back to him. The second story is, there's a woman who loses a coin in her home. And it says she stays up all night, sweeping and dusting and cleaning the entire house until she finds this one precious coin. So in the first story, you have someone that's lost outside of the house. In the second story, you have somebody that's lost inside of the house, right? Do we agree with that? Then he goes to the third story. The third story is maybe my favorite parable in the entire, in the entire my favorite story in the Bible, the story of what we would call the prodigal. Interestingly enough, you find the first story deals with someone lost outside the house. The second story, somebody lost inside the house. The third story is both. You've got the older son who's lost and stays at home. You've got the younger son who's lost and left. Right? And what you find is when you look at this very interesting story, the father inside the story, the third story, so it's almost like, God is, if you can imagine Jesus is leading up to a climax, okay? Some of you, Gary, Gary's a better storyteller than I am, but if he were to tell a story, I'm assuming that you would lead up to something, so you give a little bit here, then you give a little, and you lead up to a climax, right? That's what he's doing. So he's giving a little bit about the father, and then he's giving a little bit about the son, and then he says, and here's the problem. Do you realize this is the only parable Jesus ever gives where he explicitly explains what the father is doing. You have other ones where he talks about maybe the, the, the Lord uh, of the manor or where he talks about um, uh, the Lord of the servants where he gives out the talents. But the only time he specifically defines God as father is, and he's always talking about the father. But this is the time he defines him in a story. And when he does, what he says is that the, the, the son decides to do the most offensive thing he can possibly do and ask for his inheritance, which is essentially like telling the patriarch of your family you wish they were dead. It is in their culture the most possible offensive thing you can do. And so he does that, and the father gets him his inheritance, and then the father kicks him out. Is that what happens? story, if we're the broken younger son that sins by demanding that we want our inheritance, what would God immediately have to do? Step back. Separate himself from us. But what actually happens in the story is the boy leaves. I'm not suggesting that there is a disconnect. I'm just suggesting it's never on God's side. So the boy creates distance. He goes, and we know that he engages in all kinds of stuff, delays all of his money. Um, he decides then and comes up with this narrative that I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell the father that I'm not worthy, that I should be just a servant in the house. I, I shouldn't even be allowed to be here. 
would have heard this lament he had heard about how and before he can finish the father it says throws himself or falls upon the boy and wraps him in his arms love covers a multitude of sins now at that moment we would all know this boy's sin and I'm not going to suggest that he hasn't but what the father is doing at that point is trying to say that my love is sufficient to cover that so he covers the multitude of his sin and the boy can't get past it it's still insufficient not because his sin hasn't been covered but because his shame is so great that he says, Father, no, I'm not worthy of this. So the father starts going to further reaches to show him that there is no separation, that there's no need for shame. So the first thing he does is take a robe and puts on him. Second thing he does is take a ring and puts on him. Third thing he finally says, son, you still don't believe me that my love is sufficient, that my love has covered your sin. There is no separation, but you don't believe me. So I want them to throw the fat in the pot. I want to throw a party in your honor to show you that I've never, ever treated you like this. And he has the same thing about this boy. We don't have time to really get into it. But in the telling of the fasting calf, the thing that I find fascinating is David actually had a fasting calf for 200 and 100 or 150 days. So what they would normally kill for a family member would be maybe a goat or something like that that would be a smaller animal. So they would they kill for it, it. Now, maybe he had some other animals. But when we're talking about feeding 150 people, what the father is actually doing is he's saying, son, I want you to know that I, not only just that I've forgiven you and that I've never left you, but I want to demonstrate to our entire community that you are not separate from us. He throws a party and invites the entire community to embrace the son under his identity. That's how the father sees it. But in our story, the boy sins, the father kicks him out and says, when you come back on your hands and knees begging me for my forgiveness, maybe I'll let you work your way back up to my side. And then, and this is where it gets really interesting, what we might think would happen is that there's this kind of thing where then the fat in the calf is to cover the boy's shame because there has to be atonement for his actions. Somebody's got to pay because God's king. The fat in the calf was never for a king. Love covers a multitude of sins. The fat in the calf was to celebrate that the boy was king and what the father was doing. And it was simply because the boy could not reach high enough to go to greater lengths and greater lengths and greater lengths to find forgiveness that the boy needed to know that there's no separation. We absolutely are something very interesting, that the basis of animal sacrifice in Scripture, and this is going to be what pushes back against the Mormons, not the liberation of the Mormons, the basis story of animal sacrifice for atonement in Scripture was not to address sin. The basis story of animal sacrifice in the Scripture was not to address sin. It was a celebration to address shame. It just worked. Did God say, okay, so here's here's how we would think it would happen. Okay, so the boy is coming back, and the father says, I see the boy coming. I'm so excited he's coming. But before I can embrace him, something's got to die. There has to be an animal sacrifice. There has to be bloodshed to somehow satiate my wrath and my holiness and my anger. So something's going to die before I can embrace him back to who he is. So before the boy comes to the doorstep, the father says, okay, kill this fattened calf. Let there be blood that's poured out for him. Then the son can come in. That's not what happens, is it? He runs to him and throws his arms around him and says, you've always been with me all along. Then, because the boy doesn't believe him, 
that killed the fattened calf to just celebrate, to try and convince the boy that God has been with him all along, not because God needed something to die. So when you look at this, you can't separate them. Another way of saying this animal sacrifice, uh, excuse me, another way of saying this is animal sacrifice is not man going to God saying, can you be with us now? But it's God coming to man saying, do you believe me now? The fattened calf being killed is not to heal the heart of the father towards the son. It's to heal the heart of the son towards the father. It's the heart of us that needs to heal to know that he has never left us. Because we can't believe him anymore. We are so deep in our own shame and estrangement that we think God's separate. When in reality, it's not the father that kicked the son out. It's the son who left home. So then this whole time, we keep thinking, okay, God, I know that you're keeping yourself separate because you're holy. And so you have to separate yourself from here, from me. And he's just saying, I've been here all along. He looks at the older son as if that's not strong enough. And he finally looks at him and he says, don't you realize that everything I have and all I am has been given to you? Unbelievable. So my suggestion is that the story of the mediating work of Christ has never been Jesus as the second member of the Godhead going to the first member of the Godhead saying, can you be with them now? It's been Jesus coming as fully God in the flesh saying to us as the prodigal, can you believe me now that I've never left you? See, we think that Jesus is trying to convince God to accept us. We actually don't understand that the whole time Jesus is sent as God incarnate so that we will accept who God is. It's not the, the, the work of God. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about humanity. Jesus came to change humanity's mind about God. That he's never been angry. That he's never been punitive. That he's never been ready to, to knock our heads off because we're, we're just blowing the whole thing. He has never separated from us in our brokenness, but like the best father that could possibly be. He's there always. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to give the final story just so that people understand what I'm trying to say. Um, Genesis, the, the story of Genesis um, is, is a great way to kind of close this up. Um, so the story of Genesis is um, we have Adam and Eve, and we don't know what happened, but we would believe just typically that that's where um, separation started, right, the fall of man. We would agree that that's where the first animal sacrifice started because if you remember the story, God comes and he kills an animal and he clothes with the skins of that animal, right? So there's a lot of things that we can tie back to Genesis that kind of solidify this positioning of estrangement or psychological separation that we would say not actual separation that Jesus has come to bring. Okay? So we find in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. But what we think is that Adam and Eve sinned and God doesn't come to meet with them. Because if separation is the case, Adam and Eve sin, and then God says, nope, not today. Because you've sinned, so I can't go be with you. So we would think that they, uh, in, our, uh, in our telling of the story, Adam and Eve sin, God obviously is aware that they have sinned, but doesn't come to try and solve it. And in the midst of that, God doesn't come. They get worried, and they start saying, God, where are you? Why didn't you come? And he says, I can't be around you because you're broken and messed up and you're in sin. The real story is that not only when they sin does God show up, he probably got there 30 minutes early. When they sin, God comes anyway. There is no separation. There is, has there been, at that moment, has there been any atonement for their sin to allow them to come? Yes, if yes, then yes. Has there been any atoning work so that he could get around them? No. Thank God that he's not always there. 
because our version of the story takes us to a place where we don't realize that we're talking about the same thing. And we don't have the same So what we would say is that in the midst of this story, they see the job that's coming and ask God to say, where are you? And he says, I can't come down here because you're broken. But if you get covered, then I can come down. The story is that they actually see and God shows up. And we think we know that they already see him. I would like us to jump to the movie this way. They see God comes in a way to meet with them. When he arrives, there is a sense of separation and God says, where are you? The reply is, we're hiding. He says, why are you hiding? They say, because we're afraid. Okay, kind of a pretty exact to how the story goes, right? God says, where are you? They say, we're hiding. He says, why are you hiding? They say, because we're afraid. And he says, why are you afraid? They say, because we're naked and we knew our nakedness and this visual presence is a bad thing. So we hid ourselves because we knew that you couldn't handle our brokenness. Same. What we actually find in the Bible doesn't ever equate to their nakedness with sin. It always equates their nakedness with shame. What happened when God came in the garden and he asked them where they were? They said, we saw that we were naked and we were in shame. Or we saw we were naked and we became what? Ashamed. Yet isn't it interesting how we hammer on the sin part. And when we hammer on the sin part, it never really deals with the issue. And in most cases, when we only hammer on the sin part, it creates more shame. When we only hammer on the sin part, it only creates more shame. Because we are hammering on the sin so hard. That what actually happens is it begins to cause a guilt. Whenever you're hammering on, and it begins to cause us to feel like that, well, anytime there's guilt, God is now separate, so I have to do something to get him back. And so shame is the original thing that God has to deal with. So what actually happens is God calls them out from hiding in fear and sees them in their pitiful fig leaves attempting to cover their sin. Not their sin. Their shame. We do this to this very day. How often do we try to cover our sin with whatever? We try to cover our sin with praying longer. We try to cover our sin with reading more scripture. We try to cover our sin with with tears of repentance. We try to cover our sin with with maybe even staying away from God because we... uh, Do you know how amazing it is to me how oftentimes when people are having issues and challenges that they don't come to church? Isn't that bizarre? But we do it. Why? Shame. Man, shame. I'm not saying there hasn't been shame, but the thing that causes that is shame. But on our, what we have been told is, well, God, and here's the other weird thing. Haven't you ever thought how ludicrous it is that what we think is that you need to make sure to get yourself holy before you come in the church doors? Because if you aren't right with God when you come in the church doors, he's not going to be able to move. His presence isn't going to move. And then, so people feel like, well, I've just got too much junk going on. I can't really get this straightened out, so I better fix it. as a teenager at, at, um, at the Assembly of God, and I had been listening to ACDC on the way to church. So I had to sit there and repent for listening to ACDC so I could go in and be part of church service knowing what I liked. I was going to listen to ACDC. It's just the truth. That's what I was taught. Because not only, even if I didn't, even if I wanted to continue that way, I didn't want to be the cause for God not coming in the room for everybody else. point on his stance that there is no shame because guess what he does? He removes their covering. He takes off their fig leaves. And when God takes off their fig leaves, he blesses. God, well done. Why? Shame. He's not bothered by your sin. You're bothered 
He says, you don't need to cover your pain because that's not how I see you in the first place. When he uncovers them, he says to them, there is no shame. I see you as beloved. Sin is human brokenness. Shame is my sense that God simply can't deal with it. Let me say that again. You better get this. Sin is my human brokenness. Shame is my sense that God can't handle my brokenness. So the thing that would cause me to pull back tonight is the fact that I've been talking about So since the beginning of time, God has been trying to tell us that his love is all the covering we need. He uncovered them from their fig leaves, exposing their sin, because he's trying to tell us all, my love is all the covering you need. John, at the end of his life, is finally able to see this and put it into language in his epistle. God is love, and because of that love, there is no fear.
you know, things that the God that you don't have to fight with, the God that you don't have to be angry with, the God that you don't have to deal with those things that are bad and wrong, but the God that simply says, I've been with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I'd like to show you a few stories this morning. I saw this uh, guy named Dr. Chris Krieger, theologian, Mississippi. Many of you guys don't know where that is. It's right there. Okay. But uh, you'll be able to see that, I'm pretty sure, right up there. Um, so the way that he has viewed his relationship with God is essentially that this is the Trinity. Now, I love the fact that we don't have to have my favorite chapter in the Bible right now and prologue of John chapter 5 just because I think it's one of the most prolific writings ever. Um, it starts with actually recreating the Genesis story. And you realize that, right? In the beginning was the Word. It's a direct reference to in the beginning God created. So he's recreating the Genesis story to show us that Jesus is there all along. So in that incredible prologue, when it talks about in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It's interesting because the word with there is actually a word pros, which means to not just be in company with, but to be facing, to be facing towards. And so in this story of the Trinity, what I think is really interesting is, is the whole thing has been about that they're all one. It is literally created one God. The Hebrews reference the Trinity, the Greek reference the Trinity. It's, it's something that's never thought to really even be in the Bible, but the theme of all of has always been there. And so um, I, I kind of always thought of them as so one. I mean, they kind of just tag one another in and out. If you do ever want to just do fuzzy references, it's like WWE, except you've got the, the, the tag team match with the fighters that come through. I don't know if it's a cage match or a ladder match, but whatever it is. Um, and so you've got them, but they're, they're actually facing one another. There's this perfect exchange where they face one another. And, and what we've said is that we're over here, Maybe if things get rough, that's what happens, is Jesus faces us, and because Jesus faces us, that then God can't face us, and then the Holy Spirit just kind of hovers around in the midst of it because that's what he does. But as soon as things get messed up, because our sin happens... first chapter of Paul, I think it's the first chapter of Ephesians or the first chapter of John and many other places in the Bible actually describe it a lot more like this. You've never been outside of him. You've never been anywhere he wasn't. In him do you live, breathe, move, and have your being. All of creation is Christ's. It's always been Christ's. It will never not be Christ's. There's nowhere you could go that could separate you. Paul actually says no height, no depth, no darkness, no principality, no power, nor any other thing can separate me from his love. So even in the midst of your sin, guess what happens? You get saved if you look at Jesus. And, or excuse me, you get saved if you're able to look at God because of Jesus, and then you get really upset. Something happens, disappointment happens, life happens, and you try and turn around and go, guess what? And then you get frustrated with that, and you try and turn around and go, so guess what? And then you get frustrated with that, and you try and turn around, but guess what? In our blasphemy, we're breathing the air of Christ. In our hatred, we're breathing the air of Christ. In our cursing, in our anger, in our sin, and in our brokenness, we're still breathing the air of Christ because this is creation and you can't separate it from who he is because it's in him and not against him. You've never not been in him. You will never not be in him. 
and he is all and in all is in him. That's the truth. You've never been separated. You've been found as though you were one. You've never needed anything else. He's been trying to tell you the whole time. You've been trying to get to heaven, and God's been trying to get you to heaven. That's a beautiful doctrine. It's better than we ever thought. And if God can redeem them, it'll still be better than we thought. And in another million years from now, it'll still be better than we thought. That's the beautiful doctrine. So, Father, we thank you for this. God, we thank you that you are all and in all. We thank you that all of creation is in you. We thank you that the worlds are framed by your love and being. We thank you that the essence of Christ is what is keeping gravity and every other law in motion. We thank you that light itself is you and outside of you there is nothing else. All is light. And we thank you that in the midst of our lives, that in moments where we thought we were walking away, you never left. We thank you that everybody else right now that we think maybe doesn't have you, they can't not have you. There is no not you. That we think that those people are outside of you, that there is no outside of you. And even in the midst of their seeming estrangement on their side, they're not separate from you because you never left them or forsook them. So, Father, we ask you that their awareness would come alive. We ask you that there would be a sense of awakening within their hearts to the fact that they've been in you the whole time. And we ask you, Father, that you would help us to be ministers and ambassadors of the beautiful gospel of you are all in in all. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for the incredible Christ in who the worlds came to be. And thank you, Spirit, for continuing to lead us into all truth. And we thank you that we're in the middle of it all. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.